You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Um, I know that there's probably a few of us, at least in the, in the room this morning, that sort of don't have all of the context of, of 1 Samuel. And, and so let me just set it up as quickly as possible in this way. Um, the, the further that we get into 1 Samuel, the more that we begin to see that really this is a story or a tale a contrast uh, between two kings, two rulers, Saul and David. And we skipped the last few chapters between last week's sermon, right? Last week we were in chapter 18. Um, And so let me just kind of summarize what's happened a little bit in the gap, right? Um, In chapter 15, Saul fails to be the holy warrior that God calls him to be as king, right? Israel has asked for a king. They get Saul. Saul fails to be the righteous, holy king that God requires. And so in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, um, God removes his spirit from Saul, right? He removes his spirit from Saul, and he gives him an evil one instead. And so the, the remainder of 1 Samuel will essentially see Saul descend into this continued sort of disrupted state of mind. And in chapter 18, Saul becomes jealous of David's military success. And this becomes acute for Saul in one particular moment. They're coming back from the battlefield, right? And the women who have remained back in the town begin to sing praises as the army returns. And they sing this one particular line that gets to Saul, right? They say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And in that moment, Saul becomes jealous, not just sort of within his mind, but to a degree that it leads him to to act out, to plot treacherously against David. And so in chapter 19, he actually attempts to kill David, right? He makes an attempt on David's life, and the rest of 1 Samuel is the story of this kingdom that was once Saul's being torn from him. And so if that's Saul's journey, the contrasting journey, the opposite side of that journey is the journey of David, right? Where Saul has failed to be the holy warrior that God required, David is the mighty holy warrior, a man after God's own heart. Where God's spirit has been removed from Saul, that same spirit has now been given to David. Where Saul has been treacherous towards David, what we'll see today is that David will remain a faithful friend to Saul. Where Saul attempts to kill David, David will protect Saul's life. And where the kingdom will be torn away from Saul, the kingdom will be promised forever to David. And so we have very clear protagonist, very clear antagonist in this story in both David and Saul, respectively. And so in all of this, In all of this, Saul becomes single-minded in his determination to kill David. And so essentially where we find ourselves this morning in 1 Samuel 24 is the beginning or or somewhere in the middle of David's life as a fugitive, right? So he's been welcomed into Israelite cities with parades and songs about him, but now he's a fugitive. And he's moving around from place to place, and he gathers together, essentially, as he's moving from place to place, about 400 men who are loyal to David. And and eventually that number will creep up to around 600. 
as they flee Saul. And at the end of chapter 3, we have this climactic moment where it seems like Saul is finally going to get his hands on David, but the Philistines raid Israel, and so Saul is called back to defend the territory. But in 24, he takes up the search again, chapter 24. And so this brings us to this showdown in the caves of En Gedi, which is an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And I'm just going to read a few verses just to remind us what happens, right? So Saul returns from following the Philistines, finds out where David is. Saul takes 3,000, five times more men than David has out of all of Israel, and he goes to seek David. And as he's seeking David, providentially, right, Saul goes to a cave to relieve himself. I don't need to tell you what that means, right? Um, so I'll leave the imagery to you. But he goes, <laughs> he goes into this cave to relieve himself, and lo and behold, again, providentially, right, this same cave that Saul has chosen for that happens to be the cave that David and his men are hiding in from Saul. And so what happens now, now listen, I don't, like, I don't know how women do it, but I know that men don't go to the bathroom in pairs, right? And so Saul is alone in this moment. This is a vulnerable moment for Saul. And David's men see it as such. And so they turn to David, and what do they say to him? They say, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They say, listen, this is your opportunity, David. God has delivered Saul into your hand. You should strike him down now. And so what happens? It says David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And so David, rather than taking the invitation of his men, instead turns away from that invitation and, and goes even further so as to say in verse 7 that he then persuaded his own men with these words not to attack Saul. And so Saul, although he shared the cave with David and 400 of his men, arose... And went out of the cave, is what verse 8 says. And as soon as Saul gets far enough away from the cave, David emerges from the shadows. And what does he say? He says, my lord the king. And then he bows down, puts his face in the ground, pays homage to Saul. And then David says to him, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So what does David say? He, he essentially says, look, all of this ill will that you think I have towards you, this treason that you think I'm ready to commit at any moment in time, Here's proof that I had the opportunity and I chose not to. Why? Because you are the Lord's anointed. 
And so he goes on to explain. He shows him the cut of robe, clearly displaying for Saul that he had had this opportunity. He had been literally that close to Saul in that moment. And he says, look, there's no wrong, no treason in my hands. He's pleading his case before Saul. He says, I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And this is an interesting moment, right? Like, let's just remember David's history up to this point, what we know of him, right? He's fought, he's fought bears and he's fought lions, right, against like keeping his sheep safe. And now he's been pulled out of that life into this sort of spectacular celebrity where in every military circumstance he's been given the favor of God. He's overcome the giant Goliath. He's, he's turned back the Philistines, right? And in this moment where it would, according to all military strategy, right, cutting the head off of the snake would be the, the move here, right? It would seem to be just more of God's favor working itself out in David's life. David says, I'm not going to rely on my military strength in this moment. What's he going to rely on? Well, verse 12, he says this, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. So Saul has clearly treated David poorly, treated him wrongly, treated him with malice. But David says, I'm not going to rely on my military might, the favor that I've been given. I'm going to rely on the Lord to avenge me against you. But my hand, he says, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And then it says this in verse 16. This is Saul's response. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. And so what's happening here? Saul's admitting. He says this in the very next verse. He says, what? Like, who lets a man go that is their enemy? Verse 19, if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, and this is where it gets really interesting. Saul admits. He says, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Saul went home. David and his men stayed in the stronghold. And so here we have another contrast, don't we? And it's a contrast that is acknowledged by the antagonist himself, right? It's acknowledged by Saul. What does he say? He said, you are more righteous than I. Why? Because you've repaid me good. In spite of the fact that I have repaid you evil. And so what we see in this moment is the mercy of the new king, right? Saul fits of jealous rage. David, in response, mercy. The king is merciful.
And so, as we've said time and time again throughout this series, it's very tempting for us to see ourselves as David in this story, right? We like being the hero. But again, that's not primarily what we're being invited to see. David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's the king who is like the coming king. And so in the same way that David's arrival and his anointing signaled a transition in the life of the kingdom, so also Jesus' arrival and his anointing and baptism signaled an inflection point in the kingdom. And Jesus announces that kingdom, this kingdom that begins with David but is ushered in fully with Jesus. He announces that kingdom in Matthew 5, and I want us to, to go there. And these words, likely if we have any exposure to the Bible or to Jesus, will be familiar for us. But this is Jesus' own words in Matthew 5. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And here's where it's going to get interesting for us because a link is going to appear when Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so what is Jesus doing in this instance, right? This is his first sort of prolonged beginning teaching, his most significant teaching, certainly in the Gospels. And he begins this way. And what's he telling us? He's telling us that in his new kingdom, this kingdom that we need to right, repent and believe because that kingdom is here, this kingdom is essentially the world turned upside down or right side up, depending on what you think about Jesus. Right? None of these things that we've just read here, with the exception of maybe one or two, are very desirable in our world, right? To be poor in spirit, to be one who mourns, to be one who is meek, to be one who hungers or who thirsts, much less one who hungers or thirsts for righteousness. But in God's kingdom... These characteristics, these things are most to be treasured. In fact, it is those who possess these things who are blessed in the kingdom of God. And it comes to such a climax in verse 10 and 12 because it's a remarkable innovation when Jesus instructs his disciples to rejoice and to be glad when they are pursued would be another appropriate translation of the word. You see, in the old Israel, pursuing your enemies was a sign of blessing. That's why people sang songs about David, right? Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. David, right, it tells us in verse uh, chapter 18 that the people loved David because he came in and out before them, right? He went and fought their battles on their behalf and he returned victoriously. 
David was blessed. Everybody wants to be David when he's holding the head of Goliath. Nobody wants to be David when he's hiding in the cave. You see, because just like in Israel, it would have been perceived as blessing to be in pursuit of your, in, in pursuit of your enemies, to be fleeing from your in, in, enemies, on the other hand, was, was a sign of being under judgment. And so here in 1 Samuel, with regards to David, we have evidence that would suggest that David is either exceedingly blessed or cursed under God's judgment. And so the question for us, I think, becomes, which one is it? Is David blessed or is he cursed? And I think the words of Jesus that we just read in Matthew chapter 5 should shed some light on the answer to that question. You see, Jesus, the new David, has arrived. And so the pursuit of the righteous begins again, which is why he's warning his disciples that that's coming their way. But the response to their pursuit has shifted. And it's shifted because of the earlier link between pursuit and righteousness. See, it is because David and the prophets have been persecuted that persecution is now an occasion for rejoicing. Instead of being a sign of covenant curse, it has become a sign of covenant inclusion, is what Jesus is saying. Right? Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because your reward is great in heaven. And so again, in the old Israel, pursuit of enemies was the mark of blessing. Flight was a sign of being under judgment. But now, for the new Israel of Jesus, that is you and I, those who have been incorporated into God's family through Jesus, this has been turned all the way around. It's not the pursuers, but the pursued who inherit the kingdom. Saul is pursuing, David is being pursued, but David will inherit the kingdom. Saul acknowledges it himself. Flight, not pursuit, has become the mark of the Father's blessing. So in all of these events in 1 Samuel, what is God doing? He's training David to become the king, right? David's not king yet. Saul's still king. But he's preparing him. He's preparing him in the victories, and he's preparing him in the caves of despair. And what you'll notice if you read Hebrews 5 is that Jesus is prepared in much the same way to be our king. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author is giving us a greater insight into what Jesus accomplished by coming to us in a flesh like our flesh. Right, to jumping into a human body and enduring all that comes with that humanity. And in verse 8 of chapter 5, this is what it says. Although he was a son, so although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what? Through what he suffered. And then what does it say? 
verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so what does it tell us here, brothers and sisters? It tells us that Jesus himself was prepared through suffering to be our good king. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means certainly means one thing, and that's this, that we're seeing a theme develop throughout the Bible, not just in 1 Samuel, not just anecdotally in the life of David, but instructively in the life of Jesus and throughout the teaching of the New Testament, which is that in God's economy, not everything is as it seems. It means that when the saints suffer, it's not a sign of our being cursed, but rather a sign of our participation in the covenant. Romans 8 gives us even clearer instruction on this reality in verse 14. This is what it says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But don't miss the tagline. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so again, what we see is this pattern developing throughout Scripture, right? That first comes suffering, then comes glory. First comes exile, then comes kingdom. And so listen, I think we very easily fall prey to the false gospel that Jesus came and suffered so that we wouldn't have to. But brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer. Jesus suffered so that when we suffer, we'll be made like him. And that's the good news of Romans 8, right? That we're children, that we're heirs, that we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that what? That we may also be glorified with Him. And so the same glory in which Jesus now dwells and is exalted in, we will partake of, not because of an absence of suffering, but through our suffering. And so listen, there's a myriad of reasons that, different reasons that, that people suffer, right? And in 1 Samuel in particular, we're, we're being shown that the righteous will suffer persecution from the unrighteous. David suffers that. Jesus certainly suffers that. But there's also a, a, a whole number of other reasons that suffering comes into the world. And we just read from Romans 8 where... Paul is quite clear that there's suffering that comes about just because of the simple fact that the world is broken. And so maybe there's illness, maybe there are bodies that are broken, that don't, that don't behave like they were supposed to behave. There's bodies, all of our bodies, which will experience death, none of which are things that were intended for us in God's creation. 
But irrespective of the reason that we might be suffering, the reality for those of us who are suffering, if we are in Christ, is that in all of that, God has not abandoned us. He, he had not abandoned David when he was in the cave, even though his outward circumstances may have suggested otherwise. You see, much like Israel in David's day, suffering in our day is seen by the culture as a curse. Suffering is seen as a reason for us to disbelieve God. We have many of Many friends who are like Job's friends that would tell us to just curse God and die. And yet what the scriptures and what Jesus is inviting us to taste and to see and to find comfort and rest and hope in is that that is absolutely not true. But that he is, like David, preparing us for something. 2 Corinthians tells us about that in chapter 4. And this is what it says, starting in verse 8. And maybe we'll understand these words a bit more clearly with this background in mind. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, the reality, no matter what suffering we bring into the room this morning, the reality is that if we are in Christ, then God is with us there. He's with us in the fields of victory, and He's with us in the caves of despair. And in all of it, He is preparing us, He is working in us to produce in us eternal glory, is what Second Corinthians 4 says. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so again, we could talk about the particulars of suffering for a long time. But I think we can leave it at this this morning. If you are in any way suffering. And still 
believing, then God is right now in that suffering assuring you of your faith. Assuring you that your faith is real. He's giving you a more perfect praise. You see, because if David is capable of repaying good for evil, then certainly Jesus is too. And so my hope is that if we're tempted to believe that we're in some sort of meritocracy again in this new kingdom that Jesus has not only inaugurated but consummates and will consummate in the day to come, that you would set aside that foolishness and that you would rejoice because the King is merciful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning again, God. We're grateful that we get to come before your throne of grace. And God, we don't have to come cowering. Lord, Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that we can come boldly before your throne and we can ask for your help in our time of need. And so God, I don't know what needs are in the room. I, I certainly know that I, I have some. I'm sure that many of us, if not all of us, have needs. And we ask, God, that you would satisfy that need. And Lord, if only for clarity's sake, we know that that doesn't mean a BMW. But we know, God, that that means that you will satisfy us with all of the riches to be found in Christ. And so, God, as we come and we celebrate communion this morning, God, we are so excited to know that this meager portion that we are going to take here is only a small shadow of the great feast that we've been invited into in your kingdom when, when sin is no more, when suffering is no more, when death is no more, when all of these things, God, um, are eradicated from existence because your kingdom and your glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So God, we take this meal both as current reality and future promise that we have every spiritual blessing available to us in Christ. None of us have lacked. And may we trust you where we think otherwise. We pray all of this and we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' good name.